right. Well, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And the title is The People of God. As Paul is wrapping up his second letter to the Thessalonians, he again addresses the importance of faithful service to the Lord. And there are four points of emphasis that we're going to draw out, four main points. And I've got some subpoints for each of them, but the, there's four main points I want us to, to look at, which reveal to us how the people of God should conduct themselves. Now, this is not a complete list. This is not an entire list. But there are certainly four things that we, as a people of God, should be looking to become. And uh, I pray that the Lord will start us off at the beginning of the year with these as um, very much who we hope and aspire and press to be. Um, so the four points, and I'll give them to you again as we work through. They'll come up on the slides. But right now, just off the top of the, year, uh, the, top of the study, we want to be people who pray. We want to be people who are steadfast. We want to be people who live in the awareness of God's love. And we want to be a people who live um, following Christ's example of patience. So let's begin looking at verse 1 and 2. It says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So the first point that we have is that we are to be a people of prayer. Paul calls them to pray for himself and Silas and Timothy um, as they are um, ministering and laboring. So he says, pray for us. And, and this is something that we have said for years that is our heart and desire is that we are not just a church that prays, but that what? We are a praying church. So yeah, I mean, I think every church is going to say they pray, and that's good. But we want it to be much more than just something that we, we kind of plug in pray at the right parts of our service and the right parts of you know, uh, ministry, we want it to be the attitude that dominates and permeates the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. We want to be committed to being in that communion and that fellowship of praying with the Lord. And here's the thing. What is prayer? Prayer is experiencing God. Prayer, as we say, is encountering God. And so our prayer service um, you know, Sunday night is one of our prayer services. There's a Tuesday morning prayer meeting for men, but the main prayer service that we have is on Sunday nights from 6 to about 7.15. And um, so sometimes a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later. But the idea is that we would encounter God, that we would experience Him as we praise and as we worship, as we petition, that we, we give our place for the Lord to burden our hearts with the things that ought to be prayed for. And so rather than just coming in with a prayer list, and I'm not against prayer lists, but in uh, this encounter service that we have, it's not just praying through a prayer list. We're coming through and we're saying, Lord, what do we pray for right now? What are the things that you want us to be asking you for? What are the things that you are wanting to do that we can pray for? And, and so we, we labor in this, this prayer. Now, as we do this, we want to encounter God. And I would ask that you would be a part of it. I ask that you would be um, you know, in, in involved. I think we could probably get about a 10% representation, um, maybe less, but about 10% representation of, of the body at our um, Sunday night prayer meeting. So I think there's room for us to grow. I don't know what you're doing in your own private life, in your own private prayer closet. I'm not evaluating that at all. But I'm just saying what I can see in the corporate prayer life. I'd encourage you 
to be a part of it and to make it a, a priority that we would be those that pray. Now, he's going to give some specific prayer requests, and we're not limiting ourselves to these, but here's what he's asking them to do. And, you know, and, and I think as Christians, we can't, you know, we get upset and people get upset. It's like, wow, you know, they kicked prayer out of school. And, okay, they did, but it's not kicked out of church. Get my point? So we can pray at church, and, and so I think it's somewhat disingenuous for us to be protesting and upset that you can't pray in school when we don't even pray in church. So just, I don't know, let that sink in. You can do whatever you want with that. But I know that we're supposed to be praying together, and you know that too. And so I just say lovingly, gently call you to come, and let's be a praying church, communing with the Lord. He gives them two things that he wants them to pray for. The first thing found in verse 1 is that he would, they would pray for a quick and effective spread of the gospel. Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, be honored, be recognized, be accepted as it is with you. You've received the gospel message. It ran quickly into your hearts. You honored, you glorified that. You became followers of Jesus Christ. Pray that what happened with you will happen with other people. And here's the, 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 the truth. The word of the Lord was effective enough to save you, and it's still effective to save people out there that don't know the Lord. Some of you were so hard-hearted. Some of us were so caught up in our own ways and caught up in our own life, and yet the gospel apprehended us. And the gospel is the power of God to salvation. But, but check this out. It is the power of God to salvation, but he still wants us to be praying that it will be effective, honored, and glorified in people's lives, and that it will spread quickly. So this is part of what we need to be praying for. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 9.38, Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then in Colossians 4.3, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Paul knew the, the importance of prayer. So he asked for it on many occasions. So we are to pray for the quick and effective spread of the gospel. This is what changes people's lives. This is the difference maker. You know, here we are, 2020, it's election year, um, and I've got, you know, as I'm sure many of us do, all kinds of opinions about what needs to happen. But I tell you what, if everything that is supposed to happen happened, it's still not enough. The gospel is what is enough. It's a gospel that changes people's lives, and it pulls them out of darkness, and it liberates them, and it sets them um, on fire for the Lord, and it causes us to walk in love to each other. Legislation is not going to do that. An independent, a democratic, a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, none of those are going to do that. Amen. The gospel does that. And that's what we need to see is for the quick and, and effective spread of the gospel. And that's what happened in the early church, Acts 6-7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And chapter 12, verse 24, it says, But God's good news was spreading rapidly, and there were many new believers. Don't you wish we could say that about the work of the Lord here in Lynchburg and central Virginia? As that it's just it's spreading rapidly. And... It is, there are many new believers. It's not just that it's going out, but it's having an impact on people's lives. 
And then in Acts 19.20, so the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. That's what happened in the first century world. This is what Paul was praying for and enlisting new believers to engage in that. And so we should engage in this quick and effective, uh, praying for this quick and effective spread of the gospel. God's message has not become less powerful. But, you know, so we proclaim that and we are proclaiming that. But maybe we just need to have more time just dedicated to really petitioning the Lord for, for these same things that have already happened to happen again. You know, I sent out an email last night um, and to, to you all and um, just reminding you that um, this, you know, Jim and Jennifer Biggle will be moving. They're going down to Calvary Chapel, um, Aiken, South Carolina, and they're going to be, uh, he's going to be taking over the pastorate there. Um, Mike and Rebecca Szynski are going to go and join them down there, um, and they're going to be assisting them in the work in that ministry. Um, but, you know, this is, this is what we're praying for, right? Um, that's an established church down there, so it's not something brand new, but there, it's a, the, the field is wide open for them. And we want to pray tonight. I invite you to come out from 6 to about 7.15. We're going to hear from them a little bit. We're going to have some areas we can pray for. But essentially, we're going to pray that there'll be, um, you know, that the word of the Lord will spread widely and have a powerful effect, Acts 19.20, upon those people. But that's what we want here. And um, I started thinking, and I, I, to the best of my you know, recollection, I think um, the Biggles will be about the 10th family that have gone out to either take over a church and lead it or to plant a church. And that's what we want to see. We want to see people being raised up and then sent out. And then there are many, many more that have gone out onto the mission field um, to serve the Lord. Maybe not in the, as a as, you know, senior pastor, but in other very, very, very important and effective ways in ministry. That's what we want to see happen. But we got to pray for it. We're told to pray for it. And the other thing that he tells them to pray for, if we can be a people to pray, we want to pray for the effective and quick spread of the gospel. We want to pray for protection in the gospel work. Verse 2, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Boy, Paul knew about unreasonable and wicked men, didn't he? Everywhere he went, he was encountering these people. Um, unreasonable um, can also be translated, as, you know, it's a so it's another synonym for wicked. So I don't think there's a real distinction between unreasonable um, and wicked in the original language. Um, they're just probably using synonyms to describe the same kind of difficult people. However, as I thought about you know, that class of people that um, exist, I think that you can put them in largely into two different buckets. you got a, this group that is uh, used wittingly by the evil one, to stop the spread of the gospel. And you have those that are used unwittingly. What do I mean by that? So the unwitting are those that probably make up the majority. Maybe they're passing, they're in government, or maybe they're in you know, some, the HR, or maybe they're in some place of influence. And they begin to make policies, and they begin to make rules, and pass legislation with no intention to really attack Christianity or the gospel. And yet, the things they're doing are going to have that impact. And because they're not spiritually discerning their choices and focused on what they should be, and that is the, the, the spread of the gospel, sometimes those decisions can end up having a really negative impact upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so there's that unwitting group. They're not necessarily anti-Christ. They're not anti-church. They're just 
They're just doing things, but they're in a place of influence, and they're used unwittingly to accomplish the, the goal of um, stopping the spread of the gospel. Then there are those that are used wittingly. And these are those that they do want to stop the gospel. They do want to um, eradicate any mention of God. They don't want anybody to ever be able to proclaim their faith. They don't want even us in here to be able to say the things that we say. They want to censor what we have to say. And, and, and we could make that list even longer. But they are against what's happening. So th these are the two types of groups that typically we've got to deal with. And um, so he just says, pray for protection, that we be delivered from these people. And the Lord was faithful um, to deliver them. But deliverance looks different than maybe how we think about it sometimes, huh? Because the Lord's way of delivering is much bigger than just for my own comfort and for my own ease. And Paul was pretty familiar with that. Deliverance came in many different ways. And it all, but you can have confidence that it will come and that it will come at the right time to accomplish the most good for the kingdom of God. So we move on. We come to our, our next point. We've got a few um, points under this one as well. But uh, we not only be a people who pray, we're people who are steadfast. We're not tossed about. We're not thrown about in our faith. You know, I'm going to follow Jesus today and now I'm not going to follow him. No, he says... And we're going to talk about this idea of being established and that we should be in the same place in our walk with the Lord that, that is committed to him and not moved away. Now, as we read in verse 3, it says, But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So I'm kind of picking up the idea of being steadfast from the word established. But this first phrase in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. I think that this kind of goes to verse 2. He says, pray for us to be delivered from unreasonable men. The Lord is faithful. He's going to do that. As you pray, we know that's going to happen. But he also is talking about the Lord's faithfulness as it relates to the believers that he's writing to. He is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So it's kind of like this. He's transitioning out of his prayer need to things that pertain particularly to the people that he's writing to. And he has a confidence um, in the Lord's faithfulness to deliver first himself, but then, as we read on, and to establish you and guard you, he also believes that, that, and has a confidence that the Lord's faithfulness is going to take care of them, that he's going to establish and guard them. He was not just confident of what would happen in his life, he was also confident of what was going to happen in their life. And we're going to see this a couple of times in this passage. It's important that we speak to one another like this. It's important to have us talking to each other and just saying, I know God is going to work in your life. I know God's on the move. I know that God's going to do something. Because often we're thinking that he's not on the move or he's not going to uh, step in and do something. But no, he's going to establish you and he is going to guard you. He's going to finish the work that he's began in you. All of us are now at the first, you know, of, of the, the year can look back and think of all the things that we didn't get done. Anybody think of things they didn't get done this year? Forget about last year. That's like every day of my life. I end the day thinking, I didn't get it done. Anybody, does anybody else end their day like that? It's like, oh, man, I didn't get that done. I tried to. I didn't. I forgot. You know, whatever it is, the Lord doesn't do that. He establishes us and he guards us. 
we can have a confidence in the Lord's faithfulness in our life. He's going to do the work. In 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. He's called you. Now he's going to finish the purpose for which he called you. Jude 1.24, and I love this verse. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That, that's what the Lord is working in your life. And this is how the story ends for followers of Jesus Christ. We will be established in the presence of the Lord and we will have exceeding joy. Is that how you see yourself in the throne room of God? As one that is faultless and full of exceeding joy? Or do you see yourself as more as somebody that's ashamed and in the back row and trying not to be noticed? Yeah, I've such a been such a bad Christian. I'm sure I'll, I, mean, I think I... I'm going to make it, but nobody's going to be glad I'm there and I'll just hang out in the back and, you know, I won't bother the Lord and he probably won't talk to me. That, that's not the way it's going to be. What is going to be your, your standing before the Lord? Jude one twenty four, Faultless. Faultless. Because Jesus is faultless. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you haven't, you need to, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he took all of your sin on his body and he was punished on the cross for your sin and for my sin. He took that. But he also gave us something, didn't he? He gave us his righteousness. And so, as the scripture says, we have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Through my faith in Christ Jesus, I have the kind of righteousness that God has. It gives me a faultless standing before him in his presence. You are going to feel, and every believer is going to feel like they belong in the throne room of God, not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus. And we are going to have exceeding joy, not exceeding shame. You're going to be overcome with joy in your life because you are in the presence of the Lord. So we have a confidence in the Lord's faithfulness to establish and guard us. But we also, verse 4, have a confidence that sanctification will continue which is closely related to what I was just saying. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Again, a place where we need to be speaking into each other's life and saying, God is going to finish. Now notice he says, I have confidence. And who does he have confidence in in verse 4? In the Lord concerning you. He has confidence that God is going to do something that he's already been doing in your life. And so I encourage you, if you are feeling like it's just, it's all over. I mean, my, I've made such a mess of things, you know, in my walk with the Lord. There's no hope that things are going to work out. That's not true. God is at work in your life, and he's continuing to sanctify you. He's continuing to shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. You have that positional holiness of what we just talked about, talked about it being faultless in the presence of the Lord, but there's that practical day-to-day -day living out our faith that is being um, is progressive and is we're becoming more like Jesus. We are being shaped into the image of Christ. That's sanctification. And we need that. And that's what God is doing. God's will for you is your holiness. And he's at work. And he says to these young believers who had just come out of idolatry, I know what you have been doing and obeying the Lord, and I know that the Lord is going to keep on doing this in your life. It has always been the desire 
of the Lord for his people that they would walk in his ways, that we'd be committed to his ways, that we would walk in the commands, as it says at the end of verse 4, that we do the things that are, we are commanded. And the word of God is where we go to. And, and this is what the Lord wants to do in your life. He wants to sanctify you, and he wants you to be obedient to his word. I'll give you some examples. When I say this has always been the desire of the Lord, we can go back into Deuteronomy 28, verses 7 through 9. And we read of the Lord's desire here. He says, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. I just want you to see the parallel themes in this Deuteronomy passage to the one we just read in 2 Thessalonians. See if you can pick out some of the similar themes. That they shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. God had plans for blessing and establishing but there was the exhortation, but obey him. And that's what he said to the nation of Israel. But to a single man, King David, in Second Chronicles 28, verse 7, it was the same word. Whether it's to a group of people, the church, or it's to you as an individual, moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever, if he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments, as it is this day. So this is what he's doing right now, and I will bless him. So we need to walk in obedience. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, the psalmist is declaring the great value and the work of the Word of God, how it will warn us and how it will keep us. But in verse 11, he says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Keeping the commands of God will bring great reward. It will establish you. It will bring blessing into your life. Obeying the Lord is your blessing. It's, it's, it's for you. It's for your benefit. And I know we've talked a lot about this as we've gone through First and Second Thessalonians. Obeying the commandments of God is not simply to check off some moral code. Oh, I did that one and I did this one. I see, you know, this is my code of ethics. This is how I live by. No, that's not what the commands of the Lord are. The commands of the Lord are what we walk in because we love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. And the commandments of God are not a burden to the people of God because we love God and we want to do the things that please him. So it's not some cold, callous, just check off the list and keep that command in that direction and walk in this way of the Lord. Not at all. It's, it's a heart issue. Which, by the way, we got to keep that in mind as we raise our kids, as we interact with each other, as you teach in the Sunday school, as you lead a home fellowship, are involved with the youth, men's group, women's group. We're not just trying to get people to be holy for the sake of keeping the code of ethics. We want to be like the Lord. This is what drives us. That's what compels us. And so he is confident that sanctification will continue. So there's a steadfastness that he, he speaks of in verses 4 and 5 and that we as the people of God should be familiar with. Two more points in verse 5. It says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So the next point, number three, the peop, people who live in awareness of God's love. That's who we're to be. 
We are to be ever aware of God's love. The word direct here has the idea of obstacles being taken out of the way and having a direct path, a clear path. And it's right into the love of God. And then we'll see in just a moment and into the following Christ's example of patience. But let's talk a little bit about this love that God has. Why is it important that we would keep ourselves in the love of God? Jude 121, keep yourself in the love of God. Why is that important? Because it's in the love of God that we can deal with some things like fear. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. I don't know, some, maybe for some of you, you, you have fear that just overwhelms you. Well, here it is. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And we can be made perfect in love in Christ. That is a perfect love. And as we direct our hearts into that love, the fears that you experience in life will begin to be dealt with. Now, listen, the path made clear. Maybe your life up until this point or up until you gave your, your heart to the Lord, was riddled with hurdles and obstacles and cliffs and pitfalls and pit, uh, potholes and all the rest. You grew up in a house where you were beat down and you were told you were worthless and you would never amount to anything. And that was your experience. And then everywhere you turned, that seemed like that was the pile on in your life. And you've been told that your whole life. But I want to tell you something. That's not what God's telling you. He's telling you something far different. Through the Spirit of the Lord, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, you're going to make it. And make certain that you keep on going back to the love of God. We are to be a people who live in the awareness of God's love. And the, the higher the hurdle, the more difficulty, the more fear you have, the greater infusion of God's love you have to have in your life. That's not a bad thing. But that's the answer. That is the answer, is to know the love of the Lord for you. Yeah, I don't think he loves me. I've, I've just I've made so many mistakes. Okay. Um, the Lord died on the cross for you a long time ago. I think he already knew what you were going to do. He already knew the mistakes you were going to make. He is not done with you. He's not throwing you in. He's not, you know, turning you over to somebody else. He's committed to you, and, and it's understanding God's love and his deep commitment to us that has such a profound impact upon our life. It helps us to deal with the fear, the fears that we have that I know can be troubling. It's knowing God's love for us that allows us, Romans 8, 28, to look at our circumstances and know that God is going to do something good in the midst of them because I'm called by him. And so the things that I'm facing, the things I'm challenging, God's going to work it out. And when you allow that to come into your mind, there's a, re there's a release that comes to you. And if you haven't experienced it yet, then tarry longer on the love of God and let it touch you. And there's no better place to ponder the love of God than to ponder the cross, to ponder what we just celebrated, the incarnation, the coming of God into human flesh. Because he loves you. He is so for you. You'll never find somebody that is more for you or your life than you will in the Lord. And so, listen, yeah, there are all kinds of things to be fearful of in this life. Even if you've 
not had the life I've described. You've had a great life. There's still things that arise that cause fear. But you know, you can just say, you know what? I'm just going to trust in the love of the Lord. I'm not going to worry about this anymore. God, I've got a mess. Mess was created. My fault, their fault. Just, it's there. I'm going to trust you because you love me, that you're going to make a way, you're going to provide, you're going to, you're going to do something. And then you just rest in that. The love of God, live in the awareness of God's love. And then lastly, the end of verse 5 is that we should be a people who follow Christ's example of patience. So I'll read to you from the New Living Translation, chapter 3, verse 5. I read previously from New King James. Let me read it from the New Living Translation. I think it really does a great job of capturing what the, the heart of Paul is here. Because it's kind of a difficult phrase, that last phrase. Um, it says, May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God. And the patient endurance that comes from Christ. So we need to be pay, people of patience. And we need to follow Christ's example of patience. It's not the only way that patience can come into our life, but pondering the patience of Christ certainly will help you. Think of all that he went through. Think of all that he endured and how he was steadfast to the end. Hebrews 12, 2 through 3 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become very lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, lest you lack patience. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The trials you've gone through, the difficulties that you're facing. Jesus did too. If Jesus had to go through difficulty, why would we think that we would be exempt from it? If anybody was going to be exempt from trials and tribulations and hardships and difficulties, it would have been the perfect Son of God. And he kind of said something about this. In a little slightly different context, but he said, hey, if they hate me, don't be surprised when they hate you. I'm the master. You're the servant. And so we shouldn't be surprised by these things. So we can look to Jesus. How did Jesus endure the hostility from his family? How did he endure um, hostility from his countrymen? How did he endure hostility from the government? How did he go through these difficulties? How did he handle conflict among his you know, ministry team? And we see the patience of the Lord. He was so patient with his disciples. He was so patient with, with sinners. He was so patient with the, uh, the nation of Israel as they rejected him. And we see that he faithfully finished the task, the mission that the Father had given to him, didn't he? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And one day you'll be able to sit down too. One day work will be over. One day, if you will, your Sabbath will come. You know, Saturday is going to come, and you're going to be in the presence of the Lord, and, and the labors and the, and, and, and the fighting against sin and all the rest, it'll be over. Do you, you do know that, right? When we get to heaven, as, as it's been said, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin, and we will be delivered from the presence of sin. We won't even have to deal with the presence and the influence of sin upon our life when we are in the Lord's presence. Yeah, hallelujah is right. 
What a great day. We're not going to have that fight. We're not going to have that battle. We're not going to have that struggle. The, the testing will be over. So Christ is an example for us. And uh, we should follow him. And the, the thought of giving up. I was like, well, I just have no more patience. I just can't do this Christianity thing anymore. So what are you opting up for then? What are you, you going to do? Uh, you're just going to become an atheist now? How do you do that when you believe in God? You know, what are you going to do? You're going to just you're going to pick up another religion. Are you going to become a materialist because it works out so well for materialists all around the world, and that materialists and agnostics and atheists and you know they never have trials or tribulations in their life, right? They live forever. They never have a lack. Of, no, they they have all of these same things, but they don't have the hope of heaven, and they don't have the presence of the Lord in their life. So where are you going? <laughs> you're going to continue on. You've been obedient to the Lord, and you're going to continue on. We have this confidence from the Lord and in the Lord concerning you. I would encourage you that if you know somebody that is just feeling like it's all over, grab them by the coat, pull them close, and say, God's not finished with you. He who began a good work in you is going to complete it. You will reach the finish line because I have confidence in the Lord's work in your life that he finishes those projects. Amen? So we are to be people of prayer, be a people who are steadfast, to be people who live in the awareness of God's love, people who follow Christ's example of patience. He was patient, and so we should be.